These are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. Welcome to the world we made. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. Are you ever? And you, dear listener, are joining us in the thick of our discussion with Pastor Tim Bailey about homosexuality. And we figured it was about time for the rubber to meet the road. We've talked about the theory. Now let's talk about the practice. Ooh, I just got chills. Excited, are you? Uh, yeah. This is what I've been waiting for, Jake. I mean, I'm not real big on learning the theory behind things. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Okay, uh, build me an internal combustion engine. Nobody can prove that I didn't just do it. Actually, you were the one who brought this up with Tim. You were talking about your job and witnessing to the homosexuals there. Yeah, this was several years ago, actually, when I got my first sort of white-collar job. I was homeschooled for many years growing up, so actually a lot of the ideas about homosexuality that I absorbed as a kid from my Christian culture were really not that dissimilar from the kinds of urban legends in that Stranger Danger movie that we played back in episode one. So I'm in my early 20s and I get my first job as like not a fry cook or whatever, and lo and behold, a ton of the people there are gay. And the thing that was striking is that they weren't all like creepy and lispy and perverted. Most of them seemed happy, friendly, well-spoken, nice people. I remember this one guy in particular who was in what seemed like a very warm, happy, monogamous relationship with his partner, and it stopped me short. They, they weren't monsters on the one hand, nor were they like suffering martyrs to their own shame and depravity on the other, and I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what thread to sort of pull on, to, to dig into having like a, a redemptive relationship with them. What was I not seeing? I actually told Tim that story and asked him what I should have done, and here was his answer. The French have a saying, there's no one so blind as the man that doesn't want to see. And everything in our culture today is conspiring to get us to not see what we see in a whole host of areas where political correctness has dropped the heaviest wet blanket on our thinking, our speaking, our vocabulary, and everything. And homosexuality is ground zero for that repressive, stultifying lie. And Christians have to work hard to escape that because everything we say appears to be insensitive. I don't know how many times you've said, well, the stereotypical. You keep saying that. It's like, I thought we dealt with that for an hour ago. You know, can we please think Christianly? Instead of having to make note every time we say something that we know we just said something that sounded like a stereotype, and, and so we're intentionally saying something that sounds like a stereotype. We're not just blindly falling into it, and so we must have a principle. You, you know, it, it's just so tiring to have to always be thinking and seeing and hearing the way the world wants us to. If we give in to that and try to live in two worlds— and to be loved by both worlds, we'll end up simply being worldly. We won't be holy. Being holy requires us to see the very thing that everybody is conspiring to keep us blind to. Now you may be thinking, when is Tim going to answer Nathan's question? But he actually was. He was saying that I didn't see the pain and depravity of my workmates, mostly because I didn't want to. Like, it wouldn't have been difficult for me to find out where their pain was and witness God's truth and love to them, but I didn't want to. Tim went on to illustrate his point with quite a story, as you'll hear. Nathan and I are going to let this one play out in its entirety and come back at the end to compare notes. Let me illustrate this with when Mary Lee and I first got married, we moved 
up to Madison. And shortly after we moved to Madison, a friend of mine from DeKalb, Northern Illinois University, moved up there. He had been my English professor at Northern Illinois University, and I'd gotten to be very close to him. I mean, he and I would <laughs> go out on the uh, country gravel roads of DeKalb, corn country, and we'd lift out this little uh, two-wheel scooter with a, with a lawnmower engine on it. And uh, he was quite inebriated, and I would, usually would drink a little, but I wasn't drunk. Although, I'm not saying that I wouldn't because I was spiritual, I'm just saying he was pretty drunk. And he just loved for both of us to get on this little seat the size of a postage stamp. He was a, he was a very large man. And we'd ride down the road until we got going well. And then we'd go down in the ditch, and then up the other side of the ditch. And sooner or later, the little engine would sort of stop driving us up to the ditch because we were both, you know, we probably weighed together 300, 350. And it, was, it would just cough and stop. And then, because he was drunk, he'd just fall over. And the, the little scooter would fall over, I'd fall over, and we'd just be, you know, in, 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 in sort of a rolling mess going down the hill, landing at the bottom. We'd laugh and laugh and laugh and do it again. Now, I know it's hard to imagine me doing this with a professor of mine, right? I know that sounds hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe it happened. If I told you how we met and how our relationship developed, it's a hilarious story. But here's the deal. I repented. By God's mercy, I repented. And I married the woman I loved, and we moved to Madison, and shortly after we moved, he moved there too, with the woman he loved. And I got to know him even better. I already knew him quite well, but I got to know him better. And what I found out was that he was beating our dear friend, the woman. And it was awful. I honestly, I loved this man. But when I found out he was beating her, I had to ask her because I didn't notice any bruises. But there was just something about the way she was acting that something was wrong. And so I asked her and she said that he had beaten her. And he was a big man. He had played football in college. Uh, he'd been in Nam. Uh, he was very muscular. Well, I want you to know that I got terribly depressed about his treatment of his wife. I tried to talk to him, but his drinking was horrible. And one time, I'm pretty convinced that I was in danger of being killed by him because of my questioning him. I was doing it with love. But he was a man that when he drank, he was out of control. And he was a combat veteran. And I got so depressed because I wanted to save them, you know? I wanted to save their marriage. I wanted to save him. He was writing what he hoped would be the great American novel. I wanted to help him turn away from drink to writing. He was very sensitive man. And it got so bad for me that I had to get counseling, actually. I had to go to a psychologist. And Mary Lee would come with me. We were just newly married. That's how difficult it was for me to cope with my inability to love this man to Jesus Christ. Are you, are you with me? Now, why am I telling this story? Well, I asked her why he was beating her. Do you know why he was beating her? He was beating her because she could pass for white. I didn't 
didn't tell you he was black, man. Minute I say he was black and she was black kind of changes the story, doesn't it? Now you have a little bit of an understanding more about why I wanted to help him so much, why I wanted to see him write that novel. I wanted a masculine black man to be free of drinking, to marry this woman he was living with, to work. I got him a job, a wonderful job. I did everything I could to help that man. I, I, it didn't matter. The Holy Spirit was not working in him. And the reason he was beating her is that he resented the fact that he was black, 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 and that his wife was so light in color, and she wasn't his wife, she was his live-in for years, that she could pass as white. That's what she said to me. Now, let me ask you a question. How many white-bred evangelicals today of the millennial generation, how many millennials who are white and Christian do you think would ask, let alone listen and remember. I'm convinced that very few would. And the reason is it just crosses every boundary that our culture refuses to allow us to think about. We can't think about the fact that one black hates another because of the varied skin color. We can't think about young white punk who's just married like witnessing to a, a black man who was his professor. Everything about this story is just gnarly. But I realized then that all of life, I was either going to see what was true and respond to what was true, or I was going to live a life of refusing to see what I saw, hear what I hear, and say what needed to be said. Do you understand that? And so you have a choice. You either fear God or you fear what people will think of you. And, and I, honestly, I think that the bondage of the church today, pastors and people the same, like pastor, like people, I think the bondage is that we care more about what other people think of us than we care about the people we love and God. Well, there you have it. Now, Jake... Is Tim saying that all people in the evangelical world would definitely not ask or pursue any sort of truth in a situation where they saw a woman with like a black eye or something like that? No, that's not what he's saying. If you listen, she didn't present herself as having a black eye to him. Get your mind in Tim's position. He's a 20-year-old white man. This is his professor who's black. This is his professor's live-in girlfriend who is also black. And there's something about her that makes him uncomfortable and makes him concerned for her. And he follows that thread all the way from feeling uncomfortable about her affect or her demeanor to black-on-black domestic violence racially motivated and here he is a white male talking to a black woman about his own professor that'd be a tough thread to pull on and then you think about your own life and i think about those work friends that i have and no none of them had a black eye and it was shocking to me that they didn't have these black eyes that there weren't these obvious signs of pain or of sin or of degradation but there were those threads and did i want to pull on them did i want to pull on them until i found what the real degradation was until i saw the ugliness underneath the surface until I got beneath the facade. No, I, I didn't want to do it. And so I, by and large, didn't in that particular job. And why is that? It's because there's so much pressure put on us. Every little thread pull when it comes to 
homosexuality has some kind of moral weight. In some small way, you're exposing the big lie that we're all meant to buy into. And that we all have conspired to believe and accept together as a culture in order to justify giving ourselves over to the sins that we want to give ourselves over to. But that's what it is. That's why Tim says at the beginning, the old French saying, there's no one so blind as the man who doesn't want to see because it really is a conspiracy. And the easiest way to see this is to look historically and maybe see some of the other societies that have bought into big lies that are now easy for us to see because we're not being told to buy into them. Yeah, this is no new thing. And we sit here in 21st century America and we judge everyone who's gone before us and we look at places like say Nazi Germany and we think how is it possible that you could have a country in which everybody thought it was cool to murder six million people how is that possible well as a society they conspire together to believe one really big awful lie lots of societies and cultures do that they do it on a big macro scale and they do it on a small scale and you can see it on a small scale in any cult like Jim Jones and Heaven's Gate that's right you think about Jim Jones if you know anything about that one it's like even before they killed themselves it's like we've all decided to buy into the idea that all the women should sleep with Jim Jones (laughs) exactly awfully convenient for Mr. Jones I must say (laughs) (laughs) Right. But you see that in families even, right? You see these families that are centered around like the cult of dad or the cult of mom who can do no wrong. And I think we look at Nazi Germany. That's a great stereotypical place to look. Or the South with slavery. Or the South with slavery. But hello, modern 21st century America is a place where we've all agreed that it's cool for mom to kill her own babies. Yes, that's the big lie. And at some point it becomes convenient to believe these big lives. And I think so often as conservative Christians, it's relatively easy for us to do what we've just done, to see things on a macro scale, to say, here is the big lie about homosexuality, the big lie about transgenderism, the big lie about abortion. But then you have a workmate, you have a friend, you have a family member. The rubber meets the road with people that you know and love and care about. And then you have to see what you see and you have to be willing to speak into what you see and start pulling on threads that are uncomfortable. Threads that everybody's told you, you may never pull on this thread because if you do, you're violating everything that makes for the peace of our society. It occurs to me that sometimes those things are very blatant and we don't want to see them. I remember there was one guy at that job that I asked Tim about. One week I gave him a ride home from work. He was a young man, very vivacious. The the perfect embodiment of what I wasn't expecting. Absolutely, there didn't seem to be a thread to pull on. And as I gave him a ride home from work, he began to tell me the story of just how excited he was about his new boyfriend who was a professor at a big university who had basically taken him as a lover and they'd had a couple wonderful weekends and he was going back that weekend and it was just going to be great. It was an older man, a richer man, a more cultured man who was kind of mentoring this young man at the same time as doing all kinds of wicked things with him. And he was just very excited about it and I didn't even know what to say then. But a couple weeks later, I gave that same young man a ride home, and although he didn't want to show it, although he was still putting a brave face on it, he was devastated because this older man had used him, and he'd realized that this older man used many young men in this way. He had a class, he would get a new young protege to spend a couple wild weekends with him, give him what he wanted. He would make all kinds of promises that he had no intention to keep. And I remember him saying, it's okay. You know, we'll still be friends. He wants to see me again as a friend. I thought about all the things I could say, all the questions that I could ask. 
And then we were at his apartment, and it was time for him to get out of the car, and we said goodbye, and I didn't say anything at all. We all have moments like that in our lives where the threads have been there. Sometimes they've been obvious and sometimes they have only been obvious in retrospect. The choice is always there to see what we see or to not. We all have times in our lives where we have failed and that we look back on with regret and remorse. But the point is for us here and now to decide that we are going to work to see what we see and we're going to work to pull on the threads that God puts in front of us. That's what Tim is calling us to here. Because if we trust God and if we see the world as God made it, we're going to see the threads that connect to the pain of people's lives and that lead us back and them back to the cross of Jesus Christ. No one needs to by Nathan Alberson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia.com.